Hi, everyone, and welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you're watching on YouTube, you can always find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Every day, our first hour is a general discussion of production and IT-related topics where we answer your questions. The second hour, uh, typically, we take a deeper dive into a topic, and today we'll be talking about uh, the business of maintaining and building business relationships outside of traditional advertising. So Monday is typically something where we do these kind of business-related questions. Questions, and we should have a good discussion today. So you'll be picking up tips and we'll be trying to provide you tips on how to maintain and establish your business. That takes care of uh, our second hour, but this is a first hour, general questions. And so, Courtney, what have we got? Okay, first on deck here is from uh, Samuel Nordvik uh, in uh, Norway. He says, what hub do you recommend to get a few extra USB type A uh, for peripherals on a Mac Mini M1. All right, Alex, start us off. Uh, yeah, I, I tend to lean into the OWC hubs. So the hubs, the, the various hubs that are available there uh, generally tend to be the, some of the best solutions that, that we've seen out there. I have played with a lot of other ones um, that, uh, you know, I have ones from Anchor, Geffen, um, Sachi, I think. And I've just found that the ones that have the best build quality as well as the most consistent performance or a variety of the ones from OWC, you have to look at them all to decide which one is specifically the right one for you. But I would recommend uh, that brand. Yeah, I've had the same experience. Their engineering typically turns out to be really solid, and they have such a wide variety that you get everything from the little bus-powered travel uh, docks all the way up to multi-port docks. Courtney, your thoughts? And you might look for one that uh, it, it may not help you out, depending on the type of power supply that you have since they've gone back to MagSafe, I think, on the new M1s uh, that pass power through. There's some that uh, you can use a USB base, a USB-C type power supply and go into one of the USB-C ports that will pass power through to the Mac over the USB-C connector. So that might be a better way for you. That way that makes sure that you have all your peripherals that are plugged into those uh, A-type USB ports are getting full power coming from the power supply rather than draining your battery. Yeah, I was surprised when I got my newer Mac Pro M2 here recently, they had taken away one of the USB-C ports I had on my previous model. There used to be four uh, USB-C slash Thunderbolt ports. They put MagSafe back in, they took out one of those ports, and then they put also an HDMI feedback in. And at first I was really confused because I was so used to having those four ports and that my whole system was configured around driving that. Eventually I found out I could do everything that I could do with the old one, but it was a confused, confusion moment for a little bit as I was getting things hooked up. So, yeah, do look into whichever thing you go to. Make sure that you know exactly how to configure everything and get what you want. Let's go to the next question. Coming in from uh, Brooklyn, New York, and Mike Edwards. He asks, morning, everyone. Is there any sense in using a Blackmagic 4K switcher and capturing 4K in camera only to stream in HD? Is the picture quality that much better or not worth the upgrade? Thanks again. Alex, start us off. Yeah, I typically do that. So I typically am, am capturing in 4K and then going back mm -hmm. down. It's great to have that recording. Um, it is great to have the recording that's there at 4K and are also the oversampling does look better at 1080p. So it will look, your image will look better at 1080p than if you started there. Uh, and if you start at 4K and you now have a record at 4K, if someone comes back and says, oh, I, I really wish I had, you know, a higher resolution version, uh, usually you're putting a lot, of a lot of money into production. It's worth capturing in 4K so that you have it in the future. 
Rami Hafsoy. Yeah, same from us. We, we always capture in 4K and record and uh, archive in 4K in case the client comes back and want us to do some changes. And then even if you republish in 1080, you still have an uh, option of zooming in and doing uh, uh, smooth transitions or, or effects on the 4K source material. Mike, hopefully that took care of your question. Let's move on to the next one. This one comes in from uh, Chris uh, Widener in uh, Lafayette, Indiana. He says, it has been interesting to play with for a radio show idea. Any suggestions for other similar tools to look at? And he has a link that points to videoask.com. Alex. It looks like a very limited platform to me. <laughs> so when I looked at it, you know, it allows you to ask these questions and it allows you to put those in. But I felt like it was a very... I'd rather have people just use their camera, record a video, and upload it than to, than to use that platform from what I saw. Now, you may see something different than what I saw there, but it seemed to be, you know, it, it's a very limited set of things. It's kind of pushing you through a pipeline that, I, you know, I, I don't know if I would want to do. So I, I, maybe I'm missing something, but when I looked at it and I haven't used it, I've only, you know, gone through their website and really looked at what they had there, but it looked like it was going to be, you know, kind of a web-driven kind of process that was going to be somewhat limited. I'd rather have people just pull out their phones. And that's what we've done in the last, for the last decade. You know, I don't know why, but it's so weird for me to hear the idea of radio show. I mean, I started in radio and that, that was my first love in broadcasting. But now with everything moving to podcasting and things like that, I just, it feels. Well, and, and it may be a radio like show. I mean, he may not mean, yeah. I don't know if he means radio show, actual radio show. But one of the things I will say is that the, uh, Getting people to send in questions via audio or video, very valuable. It's great because you can preview what they're going to say and then just play it out and answer it. Um, so it's a great tool to use. I'm not definitely not saying you shouldn't use recorded uh, submissions. Um, those are really cool, but I would be careful of using them as I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I don't think I would need this platform to do that. In the past, we've just told people to put them up on YouTube. We use a program. I, I think we mentioned this yesterday called Downy, and we just pull them all out and put them run them into our production after that. Absolutely. Courtney, you had some thoughts? So if this is only recorded submissions, I was wondering if this is a way for like a radio show to do pre-screening or like normally a call screener would go through the calls coming in and see what they wanted to ask and line them up. And this looks like it would take their information and uh, queue up their video uh, so that you could, someone could go through and screen them and make sure they're all okay before putting them on the air. Yeah, which is a pretty important thing. Depending, you know, we've all had issues with uh, folks figuring they can get into a stream or something and causing a little bit of baba boy, baba boy, a little bit of issues. I, so. I think that even in general, taking, I, I will say that I, I know that there is a culture of doing this where we're going to take live callers and everything else. As a listener, I hate it. <laughs> like, I hate, I hate, I don't even care if they're being problematic. They just can't get to the point. Like, you know, like, like, just come on, you know, like, you're just like, just say what you want to say. And, you know, and, and so I find I, I, I can't listen to shows like that anymore. I just can't listen to them talk, you know, like, you know, and so people can't get to the point fast enough. And uh, so I, you know, they're not trained to do this and they can't, they just start going around the house like four times before they go through the front door. So I, I, I I love records because you can decide. You can even edit them. You know, it was interesting for me because when I was starting to do a lot with professional speakers, what I discovered was I thought it was the people who couldn't kind of get their thoughts together. Then I remember one day I had to record somebody incredibly bright, incredibly bright, 
but terrible as a speaker because he would keep doing dependent clauses. He would be saying the first thing he was going to say, and then he would think, have another thought, and he'd depend that to it. And also this, we got like seven levers, levels deep, and I wanted to get back to what he originally said. So sometimes it's not an indication of intelligence. It's just the way you present. And the presenters on, on most of the video and radio shows work in complete thoughts, and they're satisfying that way. It's hard to do. Most... Most people who are really smart are actually the worst because they want to qualify everything because they say, well, this isn't because it's all it depends. But then they start adding all the independence into their into their question. And the people who are good at this are good at understanding sound bites. I'm going to say something specific. The ones that the scientists who become media known in the media are good at saying, I know it depends, but I'm still going to just say what I'm going to say. Right. Alex, <clears throat> Alex, we'll probably have to find you a 12 step uh, program for people addicted to 1.5 speed uh, playback on YouTube. <laughs> 1.5. Why would you listen to it so slowly? I mean, yeah. it, like 1.5 is. I, well, I don't 2x think I are that, the but... heavily addicted. Yes. I'm only at 1.2. Yeah, yeah. That means my future is dead here. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm moving towards 2.5 right now. It's so, it's so great. You see something that says a half an hour read, and you're like, oh, that's only going to be 15 minutes. <laughs> There we go. All right, let's move on to the next question. From Austin, Texas, and Paul Wallace, he says, Bill Gates, Reddit CEO, and other tech leaders are increasingly talking about their corpus. What do they mean? Uh, it has to do with AI? Uh, we're going to go to our AI pundit here. John, tell us what's going on, John Bretto. Corpus is the standard definition for corpus, which is a collection of text. And so when they're, you know, GPT stands for generative pre-trained, Transformer. So pre-trained means they have a collection, a corpus of text that they build their model upon. And so Reddit was a, a, a good place to for them to scrape all the stuff. And that's what's happening on Twitter right now with uh, Elon saying that he's trying to prohibit people from scraping the data. Everything on the web they can scrape, like Wikipedia, all that stuff builds a corpus of their models for AI. And so GPT 3.5 is built on a corpus of about 750 gigabytes, which is compressed. So the more information they can get into their, as a collection of their corpus into the model, the more the more um, the more powerful their model is going to be. That's what corpus means. And it's just Latin for body, so that makes sense. Uh, Alex, yeah, and one of the big things that Twitter brings to all of these systems is timely data. So timely data um, is Reddit is the same, you know, the same fight that they're having here is being, you know, right now, 3.5, John, correct me if I'm wrong, goes to like the middle of 2021. Is that right? I mean, September it 2021. Any... Yeah. So, so the, so the issue is, is that it's really good at answering questions from the past, but it doesn't know what's happening right now. And of course, that's where they want to take it is that you can ask a question about something that's ha happened yesterday and you'd have that information. And the folks that are generating the content for yesterday don't want to give it out without getting money for it. So that's, you know, so they're, you know, they're going to, and they know that that's a, that is a lever that they can turn, you know? And so we're getting caught up in how they figure out how to do that, but, but you can see why they might want to control that. Next question. From Tlaloc, Tlaloc, sorry, my tongue, it's early in the morning, Tlaloc, sorry, Tlaloc Lopez-Waterman from uh, Brevard, North Carolina. Uh, and Tlaloc says, Bill, we were not able to see your images of the new venue in San Diego. 
Can you give us a short tour we were looking at before the show started? I did not set this up for any kind of presentation. I just was so excited to have been there. I will show you a couple of slides. This is actually a night shot of the facility. It's called the Rady Shell. And it's a huge kind of uh, specialized fabric oval thing. Has an astonishing sound system built into it. And you can see on the left and right, there are gigantic, very high definition, very bright screens, which which really does make for an astonishingly fabulous concert experience. Let me push up a little closer. You can see the symphony down there at the bottom getting ready, I think, to play some Rachmaninoff at this point. Fabulous sound, fabulous array, state-of-the-art everything. And I'm trying to find like maybe one more picture to show you uh, what it's kind of like. There we go. That one will do. There's um, from the audience point of view where I was sitting. So you've got these huge screens. You've got this beautiful facility and you've got San Diego's Mission Bay with the boats floating past. It was truly an exceptional concert experience. Um, so congratulations to the city of San Diego for making it possible for this beautiful venue. It was a fabulous evening. Let's go to the next question. Next one comes in from... Um uh, Tommy Shantz in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. He says, has anyone tried the new OWC Atlas SD memory cards? I don't think that anybody has. At least no one has raised a hand on it. I mean, you know, we all trust OWC in terms of their engineering and their consistency of being able to produce good products. So I'm going to assume that it's as good as everything else that they've made. Um, and I've had nothing but good experiences with all their things. In fact, their little MVME uh, quick drive that I use with my MacBook Air has been just one of the simplest and easiest and most affordable storage solutions I found. Alex, what are your thoughts? It looks really good. I mean, I, you know, the thing is I have the confidence. A lot of times you see these kinds of things and you're not sure if, is that company really going to produce something that's worthwhile? And uh, the fact that the price is really good, the, it, you know, and the fact that OWC is making it, uh, definitely uh, I'm going to try them. I haven't tried them yet because I, I have a lot of SD cards laying around, but, but a, one terabyte in my camera might, might be a useful one. So I'm looking at that. Courtney, your thoughts? Yeah, I was looking at the price was uh, 260 bucks for a one terabyte. Uh, I'd be nervous about losing that. That's a U3, so it's very high speed uh, in that size. So it, you could record, I guess, higher resolutions. I don't know, uh, Alex, will that do 12K? Uh at that no, speed. oh no, you don't. But you don't expect you don't. You wouldn't expect an SD card to be able to do 12K. I mean, I think I think that the right the right speed is 130 megs a second. So it's going to be reasonable. You know, kind of slower speeds. Your unique CFast cards or hard drives or other things that are going to. I mean, when you're talking not even 12K but 8K, you're talking 800, 900 megs a second, and you're not expecting that that kind of performance out of an SD card. Could easily do 4K. Yeah. Compressed. Yeah, yeah, and compressed, not like a ProRes uh, 4K though. Ronnie, uh, the only problem with uh, OWC is they have too many good products, and it's really hard to choose uh, the right one. Yeah, I was going to say I probably have four of their products now, and I keep every time I get a new machine, I think, is this the right tool for that? No, I think I need this other one. So you end up buying more. But there you go. That's a business model. Next question. Comes in from Gordon Lake in L.A. Says your niece was told to call you to get into production. What do you say to her? Sure, I'd love to talk to you. Alex, what would you say? 
Yeah, yeah. I think that uh, typically finding them a space as a production assistant is usually the place that you get started. <laughs> like that's, you know, I think a lot of people want to do something other than production assistant. But I think being a production assistant for months, maybe <laughs> short years, uh, is really healthy for someone uh, to to do to to kind of get a sense of how larger productions work. And then the other thing I would I would look at what your niece actually wants to do. What does she want to end up doing? And if she wants to do something with cameras or, or other things, then get some simple versions of that and start doing things with it. Um, you know, get out there and, and work on it, volunteer for shows, do whatever you can to, you know, like there's lots of people making little short films and, and other things and student projects. And you want to get as tied into that as you can. Um, because the big thing is, is especially when you're young and you don't have a lot of other things over your head, you want to stay as busy as you can and make as many connections as you can and learn as much as you can um, as you move forward. I had a, uh, my brother... Uh, was trying to you know get into the business and he he went to school for audio but I said he should try cameras and um, and he worked for me a little while now he's a, a steady cam the a the a steady cam for a lot of features so in, in TV shows and so so uh, so it, it is it is useful and um, you know uh, this is where you know I, I think it's funny we were I was talking to someone about um, yesterday about this they they you know they they inherited what they did from their father and he inherited from there and i was like so you're an, a nepo baby you know and they're like you know and and and, and uh, they were like well and everything i was like we were all the thing is is that 100 years ago we were all doing what our parents did <laughs> so or what our family did and so uh you want to you know you always want to try to help your family out and uh, if they're but again you want to also be as harsh as you can with get you know you can have a conversation with them that most people can't about needing to be you know, performance oriented and how to be in the you know industry and how to how to be successful in those areas. But uh, giving them that guidance is definitely an advantage over someone who hasn't done any production at all. Courtney. Uh, yeah, I'd be I'd get, I wouldn't uh, shy away from giving some pointers and what to do and what not to do uh, all that information. I'd be very careful, though, about recommending them to one of your clients. Uh, I mean, that carries a lot of baggage. Uh, if you do have your own production company, you could certainly bring the niece in uh, as start them as a production assistant or bring them online, even in a paid position if uh, if she really knows what she's doing. And, or So, you know, if you have your own production company, you're kind of set. I'd be careful about recommending them to something who you do contract work for because everybody hates to get that call. Oh, would you get it? Would you, can you, do you have a spot for my nephews in town and he really needs to like to get to work in the production business, et cetera. I'd worry about alienating your current client. Alex, you had a follow-up. Yeah, I, I agree with Courtney that, that you definitely want to be, you want to see what your, your niece or nephew is like uh, before you start recommending them. And again, I would never put them on a production that I wasn't on to start with, you know, so that they have to answer to me and I can give them lots of, uh, you know, stuff. But I would, again, not have them, you know, I'd have to, I'd make them earn it, like earn what, what what's, what's there and, and be probably harsher with them than than I would with a normal person just because they're family and you want them to be successful and it, and it, and it reflects on you. So I would tell them that as they walked in, like, what you do reflects on me, so don't mess it up. <laughs> you know, so no pressure, uh, but but I think that that uh, it's it's a good opportunity there. And but I I definitely wouldn't try to get them any any deals other than the opportunity to work really hard for not very much. Let's go to the next question. 
from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, John Fisher says, can the panel recommend a wireless HDMI system for my Mac Mini M2 that would allow me to use a 1080 TV across the room as an independent display? I don't want to cast an existing display over AirPlay. Alex. I believe there's one called HDNet. You know, I haven't used these recently, but I think it's called HDNet. That, but there's a lot of trans, HDMI transmitters that'll transmit through walls and so on and so forth. If you're talking 20 or 30 feet, uh, you know, there's a lot of things on Amazon, and they're all going to work pretty well. You know, you don't need anything high, high level or professional. You should be able to find something um, under $100 that will that will do this um, to TVs, especially at 1080p. Um, the four, the 4K ones are a little bit more dicey, but uh, 1080p across the room. Uh, again, I, I thought that it was HDNet that I that I downloaded or that I bought in the past, but I haven't needed one for for a while. And it's just taking the HDMI signal. The only thing you may have to do is convert that HDMI signal to a true TV signal from the computer if it doesn't lock in correctly. That might be the only part that is a little bit more difficult. There you go. Hopefully that helped, John. Let's move to the next question from uh, Tlaloc. Lopez Waterman in Brevard, North Carolina. He says, I've begun to see a change in sailing YouTube channels because of Starlink. I'm currently following an Atlantic crossing that is, has daily updates 36 hours behind. What other uh, verticals might be affected by this uh, remote technology? Oh, Alex, give us some thoughts. Well, I think that hiking, off-roading, uh, you know, these kinds of things are, are, have a whole new, and going to different parts of the world, uh, islands and so on, uh, was, um, I think have a whole new opportunity that we just didn't have before. There are a lot of places where we just didn't stream because there was no way to get the signal out. Uh, I actually brought to, I'm on, you know, I'm on an island right now. <laughs> so I, uh, I brought a uh, Starlink and we're going to be testing it a little later this week um, just to see what happens. But there's just so much of the world that we don't see live uh, because we had to bring a sat truck or we had to bring something else and now we have our own little sat truck so um so i think that there's you know places like yosemite or yellowstone or other things like that never had very good bandwidth and we used to when we when we broadcasted from places like that we would spend you know ten thousand dollars a day or eight thousand dollars a day on on a sat truck and then we would wireless go wireless to that and make that work and so this is going to be i think make it a lot more uh casual than it has been in the past courtney well, a follow-up question for Alex, since he has the Starlink there. Did did uh, did they ever get it worked out where you could use Starlink from a moving vehicle, like put it on top of your RV and still have a signal connected while you're on the road? Yeah, there's a mobile version of it. I think it's the newer the newer um, antenna. I don't think version one or two will do the mobile. I'm, version two might do mobile, but version one will not. Um, but there is a mobile uh, subscription that you can get that is designed to be moving while it... And I've heard... The fastest I've heard anybody that I know use that satellite, that dish is about 450 miles an hour uh, in the air. So um, at altitude. <laughs> so, so, so the, uh, so, so anyway, you're going to so get a speeding ticket for that, mister. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So at altitude. So, so the, uh, so, but it, it, it definitely is, um, it's revolutionizing a lot of, a lot of different industries in that area. Um, there's a lot of verticals there that once you can do that, I think that we might end up with better, uh, internet coverage, you know, on planes like United or, or other things like that, if they start, you know, they are in discussions about Starlink there. Um, but this also has, of course, you know, military opera, you know, um, applications as well uh, to have something that you can, that you can uh, um, put into planes to get a better, better transmission. I, for one, I'm looking... uh, you oh, could uh, do your own tour de France coverage, you know, 
right along with the right. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is down to something where, I, you know, I don't, I, I'm curious about their coverage over places because there still has to be downlink stations. And so, so it depends on, you know, in France, it, it might work. And obviously the Ukraine, it was, Ukraine, it has been incredibly important. Uh, Starlink has, has made a huge difference in the, in, the, in the war in Ukraine of providing on the ground um, information and so on and so forth. But I look at places like, well, it'd be really good to go on safari and be in Ruaha in Tanzania and be able to uplink live feeds at 4K or whatever. But the problem is I don't think in those areas yet there's the downlink stations to provide that. But it'll be really interesting when we start getting enough downlink stations that we can start seeing some of that happening uh, in, uh, in really remote parts of the world. You heard it here first. Someday it's going to be John Preto coming to us from a yurt in Papua New Guinea, and it'll all be easy to do. Let's go to the next question. Next one from Roz McNulty in Vancouver, Canada. It says, I'm overwhelmed by newsletters that I don't get around to reading. I would like a solution that turns it into a magazine or content group that I can read on my iPad. Any software recommendations? Ronnie Hossoy. Well, uh, we're playing with some of this stuff uh, using ChatGPT and automation uh, through something called Pipedream. And uh, you receive an email, uh, parse the content, put it into uh, uh, a structured uh, uh, format uh, using uh, uh, JavaScript and then uh, send it over to ChatGPT's uh, APIs and uh, even have it uh, transcribed. Uh, so... Um, there are ways to do it. You have to put in some uh, some effort. I'm not. Uh, I do not know of any systems that do this uh, good today automatically. You have to configure it. Alex, you know they have an RSS feed, so a lot of these folks have you know things that are RSS. There's a, there's some readers. So there's obviously reader, which is the RSS reader, um, but there's also things like I use a thing called Flipboard, and Flipboard allows me to subscribe to people's. Um, channels and I can so now I just get them as like it basically feels like you're reading them on your iPad or on your iPhone and I've been using Flipboard almost since it came out I can't remember how long it's been but it's been over a decade well maybe 15 years of using Flipboard and um, it's something we're actually looking at for office hours of just having um, you know news and other things coming out um, because it's relatively easy to publish to as well now when it started I was really excited I was like I want to publish to Flipboard and they didn't have any tools for it but now it's gotten much easier. But a lot of folks who have those, finding an RSS reader um, of some kind, if they have RSS distribution or using something like Flipboard and subscribing from there uh, can oftentimes get you that feel that you're, I think you're looking for. And I think I was surprised when I uh, subscribed to Apple Plus originally that they managed to put a pretty big magazine component in there. It's not entirely searchable and things like that, but they have a large list of magazines that come with a subscription. So uh, the, the majors, Newsweek, Time, those kind of things are usually there and you get a digital version of that every month kind of wrapped into the subscription. So that's another way to get access to some of your magazines if the ones you're looking for are in that service. Let's go to the next question. This one comes in from Cindy Drozda in Erie, Colorado, and she says, uh, we use Unity Cloud Intercom on Zoom meetings. Sometimes my Bluetooth in-ear speaker's volume is too low when selected in both Unity and Zoom. Only selected in either, the volume is good. I need to use wireless in-ears. How can I fix this? Uh, Ronnie Hossoy starts us off. Well, uh, on Mac, uh, you could use uh, Audio Hijack from Rogamoba uh, as uh, a paid uh, software to do these mixes and auto docking uh, like I do 
uh, in this show. I have intercom uh, going over the other sound if uh, someone speaks to me on intercom and automatically lowers everything else. And uh, you can also use that to adjust volumes and, and gain it a little bit more if you need. Alex? Yeah, um, I think it's the potato or po- whatever on the PC that, that will let you do the mixing. I don't remember what it is, but it, yeah, it's, it's the potato or the orange or the lemon um, that, that does the one on the PC. Um, but uh, uh, but on the Mac, as, as Ronnie said, audio hijack uh, and it, or loopback uh, will let you sit there and play with how those go out. And you, I think that you definitely mixing it, not letting Bluetooth just do it for you, but mixing it you know, and creating a mix for yourself that goes out is going to be more effective. And let's not forget, questions are still open. If you have any ideas uh, that you want to toss into the hopper that we can answer today, we'd love to see those questions. And as always, be sure to vote your favorite questions up. The questions that have the largest number of votes, we spend the most time talking about and get to the quickest. So remember that you're programming this show. And let's get on to the next question. Another one from Talek Lopez Waterman for Bill uh, from Brevard, North Carolina. Um, he says, Bill, do you think those image screens that you were showing earlier were 4K? And how latent did it feel? Did any latency register to you? I think they were at least 4K. They were beautiful. They were incredibly bright, uh, as befits something where you're starting a concert off in, in the later afternoon and there's plenty of ambient light to deal with. Uh, there was no latency whatsoever. And I know that simply because you're listening to the music and... Um, You've got fine close-ups of maybe a violinist fingering the fingerboard during the course of a solo or something like that, and I detected no latency whatsoever. Now, I can't speak of that. We were fortunate enough, we were in the first maybe um, five or six tables from the front, so we had the most line away adjacency that I think you could get. Now, maybe somebody back at the back, they did have towers and I'm sure there were delays on them, but whether or not that creates an offset between what you're visually seeing and the music, that's a possibility that I didn't experience, but I will say they did an exceptional job with that. Courtney? Yeah, usually they do have to structure delays on towers on a big outdoor venue like that, because if you're sitting in some of those pictures that you showed of the grass seats, they're looks like about, uh, you know, 800,000 feet away, uh, you're going to have at least a second uh, delay or so just naturally as the sound comes from those arrays over the stage, unless they have uh, arrays that are uh, pre-delayed. In other words, the delays in the stage are greater further away from you than they are closer to you. So it's going to be kind of hard to judge because the light coming from those screens, which you're seeing with your eyeballs, is traveling a lot faster than the sound that's traveling through the air. Yeah, on the wide shots, and that was a shot I took of my wife standing in the back, you can see it's a pretty long distance, so I can't believe that there's not significant delay back for the uh, the very affordable grass area seats in the venue. Um, Ronnie, Hofsoy. Well, normally on IMAG, uh, that big, uh, it's a huge cost for each panel, so normally it's uh, not 4K, but it could be. And of course, if you're sitting far in the back, there is no point of having it 4K, uh, even if it's uh, huge. Uh, so I guess they uh, they have planned this well and uh, have everything in 4K, at least up to the displays. 
Let me show you one more picture. This is literally from my iPhone of a close-up of the gentleman who did the trumpet uh, solo. He was one of the guest artists, and you can see literally plenty of hair detail. They were just tack sharp and incredibly bright, so I don't think they spared much expense in terms of whatever the state of the art is out there at this point. They, they seem to put that in there. Beautiful facility. Let's go to the next question. From Breckenridge, Colorado, we have a question from Jack uh, Rappel, and he says, uh, can they live stream ambisonic AURL 3D spatial or Atmos audio from that venue? Aural 3D, I guess it is. Oh, they're talking about the same thing I was just showing you. Um, I do not know. My suspicion is that not now, like all venues these days, they took uh, disability awareness very much to heart. So there's plenty of uh, assisted listening possibilities, but I didn't see or hear anybody on any kind of a headset that would allow for more spatial audio. They, they did have speaker arrays, but I just can't speak to the technology of where they're doing multiple point sources and any kind of five, one or anything like that. Um, it sounded, all I know is that it sounded magnificent, particularly what what really gobsmacked me was when we were seeing a close up of something like the concert master's fingers as as she was playing a, a beautiful solo. It seemed entirely organic. I was getting to watch the musicians play and nothing seemed out of sync to me as an audience member. So however they accomplished that, they did a great job. Let's go to the next question. Coming in from uh, Brody Hefner in New York City, he says, last week, Courtney reported on Simpty's in-depth comparison of HBO-approved cinema cameras. What insights from that experience are useful to those of us not using those high-end cameras? Courtney, you raised your hand on this one. Well, one insight would be that uh, they even approved a uh, you know 6,000 or what, what is the 12K? The, the Ursa Mini 12K from Blackmagic. Uh, they approved that for actual production on their HBO dramatic, uh, dramatically produced, uh, you know, for their TV series that they produce for HBO and HBO Max. So uh, that's interesting. And they pointed out that, you know, the uh, lens cap for an Aerie Alexa cost more than the uh, Blackmagic uh, <laughs> 12K. But... Uh, in the comparisons that I saw, you know, it held up pretty well. I think the color renditions were a little bit better on the Aria Alexa. Their color science is good. And the Venice 2, the Sony Venice 2, is making a lot of inroads there, too, because um, uh, because it, it has the Rialto version, which lets you separate the uh, image sensor from the recorder and all the electronics uh, processing electronics and batteries, et cetera. So that, that's what they used on Top Gun, the most recent Top Gun film, to mount three of them in the cockpit of the uh, jets that they were using to shoot all the uh, all the pilots uh, for that movie. So And it looked pretty good. So it's amazing that you can get them into very compact situations. They spent a boatload of money on this stuff. I, I bet it cost a couple of million bucks to produce this test uh, because they built sets a la Wes Anderson with two-story tall sets and a soundstage that were cut away completely. So you could see, you know, two floors, four, four or five rooms, 
simultaneously and they lit each room differently. One was sunlight coming through. One was a dark bedroom that kids watching TV. One was an attic with light streaming through one window. Uh, and one was a kitchen scene where you had a lot of like a white refrigerator it was set in the fifties motif. And that way you got to see all four lighting situations for each camera. And that, that was the test that they did for elasticity where they would shoot up to They'd shoot several takes up to uh, four stops over and four stops under, and then post-production, bring them back into the usable range. And uh, one thing it lets you know is that these cameras are all capable of doing that, with one exception. One of the cameras they compared was a 35-millimeter film camera running uh, 5219, 500 ASA fine-grain film. That didn't hold up very well. (laughs) All really? the digital, oh my gosh. all the digital cameras. Yeah, you started to see a lot of noise when they underexposed it uh, by four stops and brought it back. Uh, it was pretty much unusable, I'd say. They also did a night. Uh, they flew to Australia to shoot these exterior scenes from a drone uh, under moonlight. So they put all five of these cameras through their paces, lit only by moonlight, and. Uh, that that was amazing. Uh, some of those cameras could deliver perfectly usable imagery lit only by moonlight on a boat that's traveling at high speed. And they shot these from a huge drone that could carry two cameras at the same time. And then it went over a house that was lit from inside. And, uh, so it, it handled, you know, everything from moonlight in that one scene through people traveling in a, in a car on the beach with no light on them just uh, shot from another from another vehicle into the car into a like a dune buggy you know into four people and with the with the high de- with the uh, area Lexus and the red the red probably had the best uh, the best image I think for low light level it was amazing had an amazing array of dynamic range on that camera and uh, you could see perfectly usable you could see the people in the car having a good time and they cut to the film it's like are there people there? I can't see amongst all that grain. They had to push the film two stops just to try and get an image on it. Otherwise, it's just a black screen. In fact, they had to use the uh, Black Magic as a viewfinder, Black Magic camera as a viewfinder for the film camera because they couldn't see anything through the video assist on the film camera shooting under moonlight. It was just a black screen. So, so uh, is your opinion after watching this that now digital <clears throat> has outstripped film technology entirely for all the cinematographers who were there? Yeah, I mean, for some situations, film still might be good. And there's there's a few holdout directors who insist on shooting everything in 35 millimeter film or now IMAX, you know, uh, Nolan, uh, you know. So there there will be those those directors that like like to shoot film. They don't usually finish on film. Only Christopher Nolan, I think, is doing that. That is crazy. Uh, but in other words, uh, you know, staying on film through post-production rather than transferring the negative directly to digital and finishing the rest of the film uh, and post-production digitally. Uh, but the, um, yeah, these digital cameras have a broader dynamic range than 35 millimeter film does. Uh, you know, the, the skin tones, you know, it gives you, film gives you that nostalgic look if you're going for that, uh, you know, archival look or, you're cutting together a documentary or something that's going to, you're going to cut together a lot of archival footage or something with film and you want it to all look the same, you know, you might want to shoot on film for that reason. Uh, But um, yeah, these cameras 
they're they're kind of expensive except for the 12k but can deliver a, a perfectly usable image in almost any lighting condition and uh, and still have it recovered most of those digital cameras when they did the uh the they called it the f the uh sensitivity or the elasticity uh footage where they overexposed by four stops and at one stop each and then underexposed by four stops you know so that's an eight stop range of shooting they could correct it back to a perfectly usable image uh without any problems with all the digital can all four of the digital cameras so couldn't do that with a film wow alex you had notes yeah, just just as a note, I, I uh, was able to talk to someone recently about the super, the super thirty five. You know, the new newer version of the Airy, and they had just spent five months shooting with it, and they were super happy with it. They just said it's their favorite camera to shoot on now. Um, just said the range is unbelievable. Like you know that that's that's there. So I think uh, we're we're really seeing a point where uh, the digital cameras have outstripped it. And I will the one thing I will say is that that IMAX. If you're shooting for IMAX, that film is still higher resolution than most of our cameras, the, the digital cameras. So you're not, you know, it's, I think that they, you know, they say that the theoretical resolution of uh, IMAX is a 17K, you know, so, or 16 to eight or 16 to 18K, depending on how you look at it. So, uh, so I think that it's still, um, when you're shooting for IMAX, that's going to be delivered back to IMAX. Um, those are, there are some advantages to shooting on film, but that's probably the only place that there's an advantage to shooting on film. And there are a dwindling number of film-projected IMAX theaters left in America. Almost all the IMAX theaters have converted to digital, and it's not anywhere but, near that. Yeah. But when you have it, it's so great. Yeah. <laughs> Alex, <laughs> you buy your own IMAX projector and hire a projector. Yeah, I have one sitting in the house. I have one sitting in the back of the house. Like I'll tell you, I reels that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, those they're crazy. If you've ever been in a in a projectionist booth with IMAX, it's just these giant wheels of of film, massive celluloid. Oh my gosh! Wow, that this is very cool. Well, it, it, interesting that we've all lived to see this this completion, almost completion of uh, the transfer from celluloid to digital in our lifetimes. Let's go on to the next question from Eduardo Augustine in uh, Panama. Pennsylvania. How do you travel with your Starlink when not using an RV? Good question for Alex. <laughs> yeah, so I, I checked it. <laughs> so I put it in. I have a suitcase and I, I kept the, there's a, uh, um, it came in a box and it had kind of a formed fitting thing in it. A little, little bit of a Tetris thing to figure, remember, remember how they packed it. But you fold down the arm and you put it in there. And then I packed my, I have, I make, I pack all my clothes in these little bricks, these Eagle Creek like cube system. And I put them all around it to package it. And then I close the thing up. And then I have, I, I rode on the suitcase for TSA. I was like, open this side up. Oh, do not open this side, you know, <laughs> up, you know, like, and so there's, there's like little gaff tape with silver writing on all over the thing to make sure that they, understood what needed to happen. And uh, so now it's here. And uh, again, we're going to test it today or tomorrow. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. Cool. Let's head off to the next question. Comes in from Tim Peters in Tehachapi, California. He says, what type of remote controlled pan and tilt would you use with a small format Blackmagic camera in an auditorium? He says the cameras would be controlled by an 8K constellation. Alex? Yeah, I mean, the ones that we've used, one I've used in the past is the telemetrics heads, which are very nice, but they're more expensive than that camera, most likely. So um, what you can look at is look at, depending on which camera you're talking about, 
Um, I am about to start testing this camera, this is a Sony camera, but we work with the Blackmagic, with the RS2. I have an old RS2 laying around. This is a DJI. And so I know some folks have been playing with the RS2 and the RS3 as far as a, pan, a small pan and tilt. And I think, in fact, I think Ronnie has uh, done some of that testing there. Um, so I'll let him jump in if he wants to talk about that. But uh, but I think that, that that's an option as far as being able to put something together that's less expensive. But there's a lot of pan and tilt um, solutions that are in that uh, $1,000 to $4,000 range uh, for pan and tilt heads. But the, the telemetrics that I'm talking about is $15,000 a head, so it's a little more expensive. Ronnie? Uh, yeah, we played a little bit with this. Uh, you need a box, uh, I'll leave the link in Mukana uh, afterwards, um, to interface between the uh, whatever you want to control it with and uh, and do the automatic uh, uh, tracking, uh, so to speak. So there's a lot of options uh, if you want to hack it and you can easily purchase a used uh, RS2 or even a RS uh, to get this working. You don't need the newest uh, versions. Hmm. Courtney? One thing to take into account, though, is if you have a remote pan tilt head, is is do they pass SDI through the head? And you'll need two SDI links uh, to go to that camera if you're going to control it, don't you? Uh, with the return feed from the constellation to control the uh, the color science and it's uh, and all the other controls. Right? Okay, you still have uh, to do we that. Have... You're controlling the, the for the less expensive versions. You'd still be controlling the cameras shading separately from the from the head there's not really it's not really an integrated solution um for that process but you can again when you get into the more expensive heads all of that stuff passes through um but on the less expensive heads it won't you just have to kind of tether the wires so that they don't interfere with yep. the pan tilt yes nice. yes useful information um your vote remember is important i'm not sure we're going to get through everything or we'll keep pushing diligently to try to do that but uh uh, vote on questions. Uh, we have a couple of questions in for the business relationship second hour. So remember that you can add those as well now and give the panel time to cogitate on them a little bit before we get into the second hour. Next question. Comes in from Douglas Carmichael. He says, when would you use a line isolator as opposed to a DI box? Well, sometimes it has to do with are you getting noise and things like that and isolated, um, isolating circuits can help you uh, eliminate that problem. Courtney, your thoughts? Yeah, humbucker is a lot of times what it's called to, to isolate an audio channel to go through a transformer or sometimes even through an opto isolator so that it makes sure that there's no electrical connections between the input and the output. That the uh, ground loops tend to, especially if you're using unbalanced uh, things like guitar pickups and so on, which tend to uh, just... Uh, pick up a lot of hum. Uh, so that's one reason. The DI box uh, will help you isolate that. Depends on the DI box. Sometimes they can have that isolation built in through opto-isolation or through transformer isolation. But sometimes these days, most of them, I think, are just uh, op amps that are in there that are amplifying the signal. We're in Ronnie Hofsoy. Yeah, and one uh, other thing to think of, uh, the, the DI boxes is normally for taking a balanced signal and making it, uh, uh, I'm sorry, an unbalanced signal and making it balanced. Uh, whereas the the need for going out from a professional mixer with, with uh, balanced audio is also to have it uh, become unbalanced going into, for instance, uh, the uh, ATEMs, uh, uh, switchers and we always use the radial J 
dash ISO boxes with uh, high quality uh, transformers to do the transformation of uh, both the signal level and going from balanced to unbalanced. So that's a good solution and has always uh, kept our production noise free. Thank you, Ronnie. And let's go to the next question. From Tommy Schantz in St. Paul, Minnesota, does anyone on the panel use multiple networks with the same computer for production? Alex. Yeah, we've often used multiple networks. And so you can have, you know, basically uh, you can have an Ethernet connection that comes with your computer, but then you can take a USB to Ethernet and do another uh, version of that. And that'll, that'll help, um, you know, have given you that separate network. Oftentimes for us, one network is often internal or something like Dante, uh, and the other network is the general internet network. And so you can kind of break those up and decide which ones you're going to use there. Makes sense. Next question. Coming in from New York City, David Brady asked, what would cause Bluetooth headset to toggle between stereo and mono when paired to my Mac? I can't determine if it's the app in use or what. I have an aggregate audio device built that I use with SoundDesk and the left and non-mic bud, mic bud often drops. Hmm. So he's got some monitoring issues. Alex, thoughts? Yeah, I would take a look at what you're, you know, I, for these kinds of things, I would vary, you, it, this is just, you have to back up and go, okay, when is it in stereo? When is it in mono? And then just change one thing at a time and see what that, see what, what it generates there. I think that's the issue there. All right. Hopefully, uh, David, that, that gives you something to look at. Let's go to the next question. Coming in from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles. What brand of power bricks do you keep in your bag? Ooh, uh, Alex. Um, yeah, I have, uh, I'm, I, I'm looking at the one that I have here. This is, uh, the hyper juice and the hyper juice one seems to work with everything more effectively. Um, and so, uh, there's a hyper juice and then I use these Weibo ones that are like 240 Watts or 200 Watts, but most of them are USB-C. I usually have at least three USB-Cs, um, along with, uh, um, uh, it, they gotta be hundred watt connections, at least 200 watt connections on them. I don't carry anything else just because it's, it's really problematic. Courtney? I like the Anchor products, and I'd usually use those if I can find them, uh, for both AC-powered and for DC backup, uh, battery-powered lithium-ion backups as well. Anchor makes them. Yeah, for remote stuff, I got one of the bigger, newer Anchor ones, and I really like it because it has enough actually to do the modern laptops, the M-series laptops. So it has some decent, I think it's pretty close to 100 watts, maybe 95 or something like that. So not only can I do all the devices, but if my laptop is running low, it'll handle that in the new form. Ronnie Hossoy? Yeah, just make sure it's not that, that big that uh, you can fly with it. There is a limitations on the uh, on the air security, and you always have to have it on the carry-on. Wise advice. Let's move on to the next question. This one comes in from Joe Phillips in Murphy, North Carolina. Corsair recently announced a Stream Deck goes free, up to six keys on their mobile app, free forever. What are your thoughts on this uh, freemium app model? Useful for app publishers in our community. And here's a link to the Corsair newsroom. Alex, do you use this? 
I, you know, I'm, I'm actually really interested in that. I, I've been trying to figure out how I'm going to use my phone more often with that specifically I'm trying to this week I'm trying to get this get the get the stream deck stuff now I've already paid for the stream deck one so I don't I think that this is a great idea for giving people a handful of keys six keys would let you run your keynote would let you do a lot of other things that you that you might want to do there so I think I think it's a great idea and uh, again I've already paid for it so it's too late for me but um, but I think that uh, I'm trying to get that to work I, I bought it and I really haven't used it and now I'm trying to figure out how to use it in this environment to mute, unmute, that kind of thing while I'm on the road. So uh, it's going to be interesting. We'll, we'll take a look at it. We'll, I'll let you know how it works uh, by the end of the week. So, Joe, that gives you a little tickler file thing. Stop back in a week or so and ask Alex how it's coming along. Let's move to the next question. From Douglas Carmichael, he asks, what remote access app would you suggest for controlling your Mac from an iPad? Would there be any equivalent to Parsec that works from an iOS client? Alex? Any desk will work from your phone. So I've actually logged into a computer uh, with any desk on my phone and just moved around and, and selected things and so on and so forth. I don't know if other ones do that, but the any desk works great from an iOS device. Next question. From Tlaloc uh, Lopez Waterman in Brevard, North Carolina. Courtney, what speed film did they use for the film test? Was it a fair comparison referring to the safety test, of course? Take it away, Courtney. Uh, yes, they use a uh, 5219 uh, color negative uh, for the, uh, which I think is rated at ASA 500. They rated it at 500. Uh, they did push it two stops uh, on the, for the moonlight test. So, and, you know, they went to PhotoChem and they talked to them about how to try and make it, just get it on the, you know, in the neighborhood. And they said, well, we can push it two stops without it turning completely to mush. Uh, but still, it turned completely to mush. Uh, the problem is <laughs> the grain size. When you push that 500 ASA, which has a pretty large grain size to begin with, two stops, uh, it's going to get real noisy. And um, and you could see it. I mean, some of the cameras did get, a little, did get quite a bit noisy when they underexposed by four stop. You could see a lot of noise come up uh, in some of the... Uh, sensors, uh, especially the higher resolution sensors like the 12K. Uh, but it did, that actually did pretty well. Uh, you didn't see the, you didn't see the, uh, I take that back, not the 12K, the uh, the Monstro uh, or the Sony, you saw a little bit more noise. When they underexposed it four stops and brought it back up, you know, it brings the noise up uh, by four stops. So uh, there's that problem, but yeah. It's as fair a comparison as they could do, and they had a good film lab, a photochem doing the processing and transfer. So uh, I don't think uh, they were making it look bad by any means. And they had very fast lenses. They used exactly the same Zeiss lenses on all the cameras. So you're shooting through the same lenses. The camera doesn't make a difference. In, and of course, the 35 millimeter, because it's all about the lens and the film. Uh, so uh, they're at the same f-stop, et cetera, you know, pretty much wide open. And this was done under the Society of Motion Picture and Television Engineers. And at the ASC, the American Society of Cinematographers, was did they provide the actual DPs and the things like that? So was this kind of working at the at the most technically sophisticated level of the industry? Would you consider that correct? Uh, yes, they uh, all had uh, good DPs that were handling it. I think James Mathers and uh, who was the, the Beaver's brother. 
um, wow. <clears throat> Jerry Mathers. He's been a, a DP in in uh, video, done video as a video cameraman and editorial and DP work for you know forty years. Uh, so he's very highly qualified. And he hosted the uh, the event. Uh, so they they did have qualified people that were obviously uh, handling all this and that. Like I say, they spent a boatload of money creating all the sets and shooting in multiple countries, et cetera, to achieve these uh, these comparisons. And they were, the uh, the post production was really well done too. They would do these uh, to to show the elasticity. They would do these wipes that would uh, go around the circle of these four rooms that were built on stage. And uh, they would go with, you know, one stop, two stops, three stop, four stop, and this clock type wipe where you could see the different stops compared to each other as the wipe comes around. So it was really very interesting. And they, they did, uh, uh, you know, they did a great job on producing it. If you look at the trailer, if you look online for the HBO camera test, annual camera test, and they do this every year. I think they took a year off for COVID, but uh you know, they do this comparison test to figure out which cameras are the best for them to produce on every year. And so it gets kind of expensive, but uh, they they do it right and they spend all the money to do it correctly. Nice. Let's go to the next question. From uh, Jack Rappel in Breckenridge, Colorado. He says, what is the workflow for obtaining high quality audio from film footage archive.org? Uh, Ronnie Hossoy. Well, I don't have an answer to this, but we are looking for uh, similar technologies to have, for instance, uh, this uh, broadcast uh, on YouTube split up to uh, each question, put that into an uh, audio transcriptor service like Whisper and then get the tra- transcription back and then start to modify that. Uh, we, we have looked into several options and uh, are still looking for an optimal workflow for these types of uh, of. Uh, issues or yeah things to do old uh, doesn't old film just have a mag stripe down the side so that could have degraded over the course of time Al, uh, courtney you know about this uh it, it varies i on another simpty meeting simpty meetings are great to go to if you have some in your area attend um that uh talked about uh doing uh taking several older films like lawrence of arabia and converting them to uh dimensional sound where they take the original soundtracks that they have available for them. And it depends on the film. Some of them, the only surviving soundtracks are the actual uh, six track uh, magnetic uh, stripe films that were projected. And sometimes they can go back to the stems where they have uh, music and effects, uh, uh, music, dialogue and effects, those three stems, and they can mix from those. But usually those are a lot of times mono. Uh, And sometimes they're optical. So uh, they have to have special optical pickups that they transfer the optical soundtrack in, and then they have to run it through de-poppers and de-noisers that remove any of the optical, you know, scratches and things that would cause pops and clicks and uh, variable uh, bows and flutters from that uh, 35 millimeter optical soundtrack and then they bring it into uh, audio workstation where they do the cleanups on it and you got to remember back uh in the in the 30s 40s and 50s up until the time of magnetic and digital sound uh there was the academy filter which you know limited you till about 8000k on the high end and uh you know above about 200 
hurts on the low end. So, you know, the dialogue is very clear in all those movies, but you didn't have a lot of fidelity for orchestral pieces and so on until they got to to using a, a multi-track uh, optical and then multi-track magnetic for and Fantasia was the first one that did multi-track optical, six-track optical in the release that ran on a separate dubber, a separate sound playback uh, film transport that was played back in sync with the uh, 35 millimeter film that was in the projector so that they could have six tracks of playback because back then that was the only way they could uh, fit six tracks onto a piece of film. It was two separate pieces of film. So that there's uh, there's a lot of uh, audio restoration that goes on. And, and on Simpty, you might find some information there on their website about uh, uh, restored films there. Let's go to one more question. Talalik Lopez Waterman from Brevard says, how many MEs is enough MEs for a large show like an NFL game? How many MEs or mix effects buses do you need those big raw switchers? Or how many MEs do those big raw switchers have? Alex. Most switchers uh, will limit, are generally limited to four. You usually see four, but there can be up to eight that I've seen on some of the switchers. Those are Grass Valley switchers, I believe. And so, uh, and but a lot of the ones that we see in trucks are typically, I think, about four is what we normally see. Um, and so um, I think four is what they get. I think you talk to any TD and we had uh, Brad on last week, uh, th- there's not enough Emmys. I mean, you could, they would fill as many Emmys as someone gave them on a switcher because what they do is they just build other programs on them. So it's just a cost and complexity division. But if you ask the TD, I think they would ask for 16, you know, so, so you know, or, or 32, because uh, they just keep on building. They would just build more complex shows because those are places where they can build a different setup and a different look and so on and so forth um, uh, and, and keep moving forward. So we've got one more question. I think we'll sneak it in here before we transition to our second hour topic. So, Courtney. All right. Gordon Lake from Los Angeles, California. He says, what production knowledge do you have that is no longer useful? <laughs> Try not mm. to take four hours on this, Alex, because we've all forgotten I, so I much. Say, I would say almost none of it. I, almost all of it is still useful. I mean, the thing is, is that the as as we were talking about earlier the corpus of our experience uh, allows us to trouble problem solve things that come up and they're weird you know there's weird things there are things that i learned on a farm that are useful in production and i learned those 40 years ago so i don't know of any um, the knowledge that i have that i would consider not useful at this point except for the stuff i forgot because i haven't used it for so long yeah, there, there may be a couple of technical things that nobody's ever using. Like, I actually know how to operate a wire recorder. I'm not sure if that is all that relevant to today, but Ronnie. But it's the experience, the experience yeah, of, that you apply to other things. I can edit by tying a knot in the wire. Ronnie Hofsar. Well, there's only one thing I can come uh, up with, and that's token ring network uh, uh, topology. That is uh, something I actively have forgotten. Good God. Okay, Courtney. Well, I haven't quite forgotten it yet, but I, as I've been in the business 50 years, I've seen a lot of things come and go. Uh, and in my field of uh, work, audio and uh, video playback, 24-frame video playback, has changed considerably because we've gone from recording on analog recorders. So, uh, you know, aligning, doing the azimuth alignment on the heads uh, and adjusting the bias voltages on the heads, you know, that's history. Can't even find tape anymore. Uh, so there's there's one thing. Then we move to uh, uh, DAT. 
which of course is another dead format. And the problem with DAT was in transferring it. We had to do when shooting 24 frame film and recording sound on a DAT recorder, you had to use time code for synchronization. And the time code in America was at a SMPTE rates and the film was running at an integer rate. The time code was running at a non-integer rate. So we had to do funny things about pull up and pull down of uh, the time code rate to get the time code numbers to sync up right. Thankfully, most of that is history now since we are recording on digital files uh, at 5994 instead of uh, 24 uh, or 30, which is what we used to have to record with time code at 30 and then pull it down to 2997. It got incredibly complex. And thankfully, I can erase all of those gyrations from my brain. I actually wrote software to deal with that, that a lot of post-production houses dealt with, and I don't get calls from them in the middle of the night anymore. Yeah, I don't think I've wired an RS-232 connection in a long time. So some stuff does fade away. All right, that moves us into time for our second hour. And uh, today, uh, it's Monday, we're talking about kind of business things. And we're talking about business relationships here. And anybody who's been in the business a long time, uh, and know it's always been one of the most important aspects of maintaining, uh, developing and maintaining your career learning how to keep your relationships strong. When you are lucky enough to get your first clients, you learn really quick how hard it is to add a client as opposed to making your existing client happy. So most of us work really diligently to maintain these kind of relationships. It is really critical. And particularly, I think now that you know, your competition is really the world. Back in when I was starting out, you had a local pod of people who did the same kind of work that you did. And, uh, there was only so many resources that a client who had some money to spend on production could go to. Well, now in the digital world, particularly all this distributed processing we do, your clients, theoretically, your competition, theoretically, could be coming from anywhere on the planet. So it is a more difficult, I believe, competitive and environment than it's ever been before. So we're going to spend the next hour talking about how to manage business relationships for success. I'm going to let Alex start off and uh, do the next segment of this. What's your experience been like? Alex? Sorry, I was having a little audio issue there. Um, The, uh, (laughs) um, uh, you know, I think that one of the things that's really important is to, is we don't like I, a lot of times I went with pixel core. I didn't view what we did. We didn't have any sales staff. You know, we didn't try to sell people on anything. We didn't do any advertising. We didn't even have a website. Most of the, the most of the time the pixel core did production. It didn't even have a website that said we do production. What we focused really on is exactly this, which is that when we, when you handed us something, what we were going to do is give you a level of confidence that it was going to get done. Um, and, and also, you know, one of the things that I just all, that always sticks with me in, with the, in the Ritz, when you walk into the Ritz, I've never really stayed at the Ritz, but I've, but I've worked in the Ritz. And, uh, when you go through the loading dock, uh, there's this sign that everyone sees that says, ladies and gentlemen, serving ladies and gentlemen. And that's the way you want to treat your clients. And that's the way you want to be when talking to your clients is you bring this certain class to what you, how you talk and how you work with your clients. And, and it tends to be, uh, that tended to be something we focused on very heavily uh, in, in our emails, in our interactions, in our, you know, a lot of it was low key, but very, you know, but very professional. Um, I think that 
the folks that we saw didn't weren't that weren't as successful oftentimes were folks who were a little too candid. <laughs> they, they, they joke a little too much with the clients. Um, they'd hang out and they'd think that they're building a relationship, but wow, is that dangerous? Like you might get a certain kind of client that wants to do that, but if you want to keep moving up and, and cause I will say, if you're moving up into larger and larger clients, um, it really made a difference to be, you know, to really keep it tight. You know, a lot of times that's what we talked about was keep it tight, you know, in that, in that process. Um, and, and so the, um, so we really focused on, on how we interacted, uh, minimum number of words for, for things that we needed to say, um, you know, building out things that, that really provided that. The other thing we did is we didn't tell the client that everything's going great because if things went wrong, then they didn't have any confidence in us anymore. They didn't believe it, but we also didn't tell them everything was going horribly either. Even if they, it might've been, we might've had some challenges at that moment. We did communicate it when we needed to, but until then we were like, well, everything's nominal or, oh, we're working on these things. And we tended to live in a very low key, nothing is excitable. And the reason that we stayed low key on almost everything um, was because when I needed to, when we, when we were in trouble and we needed the client to do something, we would step it up and say, hey, this is something that's important. And they almost had almost never saw that. <laughs> so, so we're like, hey, this is important and we need to handle it right now, you know, or we're worried about something. By not saying we're worried about something all the time and not being excitable all the time, and keeping this kind of low key drawn out process, um, you know, we, we tuned the client to a, to a position where they understood that if we say something's a problem, it's really a problem. And, um, and so I think a lot of people go, you know, tend to go too far in that area. And a lot of people want to tell their clients, they always want to tell their clients that everything's going great. That's fine. As long as you really know that everything's going to go great all the way through the thing. And most of us never know that, <laughs> like that it's always going to go perfectly. And so, so staying in that low key, then the other thing is, is that we really spent a lot of time triangulating our clients. And so looking at what they like, what they don't like, what they want to do, we're trying to think about ahead of time, like this is how they think. This is what they want. And all the way down to we had a client that their logo was blue and white. And what we did is we like when you walked into our space that we had behind the stage for them and the places that they sat the power supplies were white and all of their little iPhone charging cables were all blue. And, you know, it was down to those kinds of things all the time. Um, We knew what kind of coffee they wanted. We knew what kind of, you know, like, you know, we, we, you know, I don't do as much physical production anymore. (laughs) So I don't think about it as much, but when we were interacting with them, we, we really um, paid attention to every little thing that they would be happy with. Um, You know, I knew that one, I had one, one client that would lose their Apple uh, their iPhone cable all the time, their iPhone, they just never had it. And they'd always say, Hey, do you have another iPhone cable? I had a whole bag of iPhone cables. <laughs> I just, handled, I just, handled, they'd say, Oh, I'll get it back to you. I'm like, Oh no, just keep it. It's fine. And, and they didn't realize that that was part of that. But that's to me, that kind of service is far more useful than all the ads in the world is, is, is how someone feeling like, and we, look at how every single show is going to be better than the next show. You know, a lot of times what a lot of production companies oftentimes that we end up taking their work is they're focused on how to squeeze the most margin out of things. I'm always figuring out how to have it be a good business, but also how to just keep on ratcheting up the quality, keep on ratcheting up the customization, keep on ratcheting up and trying to find new ways to, um, to make it better because it makes it harder and harder. If, if the client decides to use somebody else, it becomes almost impossible for them. For, you know, someone else gets in there and they just, they, it's unworkable because we have figured out all this customization beyond just the doing the show. There's all these other things that we've built around it that really um, encase that, that show and make it much, much higher experience, better experience for the client. 
um, and you know, just a lot easier to, to to process there. So, Courtney, your thoughts? I was going to elaborate a little bit on kind of what uh, Alex was touching on, and I worked for many years in the uh, commercial business, you know, producing television commercials uh, or working on television commercials. Me, but working with television commercial producers for a high end, you know, network television commercials, and I'll tell you. They nothing is unheard of for providing uh, for the client, the agency area. They would bring in really comfortable designer count leather couches and arrange them in a U shape. They would have lots of places to plug in their iPhone chargers or even provide phones before there were iPhones, uh, before there were cell phones for the agency to be on and talk on. And of course, a large screen monitor for them to look at the video assist on as we were shooting uh, the commercial. They would even light them. They'd have the gaffer come in and light the client area with, um, they'd have practical uh, lamps on end tables at the ends of the couch so that they could read or do whatever they look at their scripts and do whatever they need to with available light but not keep it too bright uh and and block off they put uh, 40 by uh, black uh, cloth up to uh, block the light coming from the set from shining in their eyes so um they went to every expense and then of course craft service is another amazing thing. They would have, uh, you know, a top chef come out and cook little uh, um, hors d'oeuvres that they would bring around every 20 minutes or so on a tray to the uh, all the clients and the agency people uh, in that area. The other thing is they would actually have to build two areas like that because a lot of times the production company would want to keep the clients separated from the agency because they don't want interference between those two. They don't want the clients make, you know, making a lot of suggestions to the agency who's come with their storyboards all intact, and uh, they like to keep that down. The other thing is they have to deal with, the, you know, parents, if you're dealing with children, they have another little area that has to be set up with separate video assist uh, uh, for the parents of the children that are on camera so they can see, and they're not near the clients so that they don't hear what the clients are saying about their kids, et cetera, or the actors. So uh, it's, you really have to walk on eggshells to preserve that business relationship between the clients, the agency, and the actors and their significant others or parents. Uh, so it, it's a delicate balance. And they spend huge amounts of money on just maintaining that simply for the fact of retaining that relationship. And, and I worked on a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of clients, a lot of production companies would have the same relationship uh, with that particular client uh, for years and years, even though every, every job comes up uh, in the advertising business, they have to put it out for bids and they'll put it out for bids for different production companies. But each client would have their favorite director so a lot of times they would always bid on that director and make sure that that director won the bid as long as they were happy and keeping them happy was a major business consideration. Alex, you had a follow-up? Yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, all of the things that we're talking about on set, but there's also things about how you relate to your clients. Like one of the things that I think I didn't do very well for a long time was I hated video meetings. I know that sounds crazy because we're in a video meeting right now, but I hated being tied down to my office. Um, and so I, I, you know, didn't, I really didn't, I, it was kind of this passive aggressive and what I was doing at the time was video events, right? Video meeting events using hangouts and so on and so forth. 
but I would always say, hey, I'm having trouble or whatever, and I'm just going to call in. So I'd call in for all these uh, things so I could walk around and I didn't have to be, you know, in, inside of this, this process. Um, that was a huge mistake because I think that, you know, it, you know, when you, if you're meeting with clients, you should be a place where you can have the meeting and you should look good and sound good. That is, especially if you do what we do, if we're doing production, you need to look good and sound good. Don't call in. Don't call in. I will almost never call in. My schedule is, unless I'm traveling, unless I'm on the road, my schedule of when I'm in my studio, home studio or not, is wrapped around all those meetings. I am on that meeting. I am in the camera that you see right now. I look the way I look. I sound the way I sound. And it changes the way you interact with your clients to be in that area. You don't, you know, a lot of people think that's not important, but I'm telling you that... (laughs) It makes a difference in, in, in what's going on there. And so you definitely want to focus on, on how you interact at every single meeting and how you and, and whether you're ready for that meeting. And, when you're, and, and the other thing that, that um, I don't do is I don't do anything other than the meeting. If I'm going to be in the meeting, I'm in the meeting. I'm not checking my email. I'm not ordering things. I'm not checking other things. I'm not watching anything else. I'm just present, you know, and, and you know, in the meeting. And... 80% of the few folks in the meeting are not, which means the meeting goes, the direct, you know, goes, goes, you know, fully, you know, leans towards me and the client because, because it's, because I'm present. I'm just listening. I'm just sitting there in the conversation, listening and having that and knowing I can just watch everybody on the, on the, on the call and watch everybody else that's looking down. They're going through emails and texts and all kinds of other things and they're not fully present and you just can't have a meeting where you're not fully present in my opinion. And most of the time when I'm working with clients, I usually have a producer. If we're going to talk about a project, I usually have a producer in the call with me. They're writing everything down. I don't even try to write it down. I just want to be there. I want to be in that call, in that call, and not write anything down so that I can really in client and you're out there. Need more. Stop. For me, I try to avoid. You kind of go down the path. Thing is, your emails. You know. Um, I get really touchy. People worked around me. The emails, you know, are have to be very uh, professional and soft. You know, like hey, you know, you, you know, there's a lot of ways to say the same thing, and you want to think about how to say them in a nice way. How to even if the client is behind on something or whatever, how do you coax that out of them without making them wrong, without the feeling? Because you don't want clients to have it like, oh, when I talk to Alex. I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble with my own, with my vendor, you know, because they're upset about something or they're pushing at me at something and you don't want them apologizing to you. You want them to be excited. You know, I always look at how, and I'm, I don't always do this well. <laughs> Sometimes I can, but, but I, but what I'm always striving for is to get to a point where they're excited to talk, you know, about something. They're excited to be part of that conversation, you know, with me and not that they're, that, they're, that this is going to be a hard conversation, you know, to have, uh, you know, be, you know, you don't, you don't want your clients to relate to it that way. So, so really think about how, how you approach that. The final thing I'll say before we get into questions is be really careful about billing. Um, you know, I think that a lot of people, they think a lot about what they need as opposed to what the client's going through to get them paid. And um, people who are hard, you know, they think that it's a great thing to sit there and email someone a, a relatively terse email at 31 days when it was a 30 day, uh, you know, term or whatever. And there's a lot of clients that always, you, it's not, you know, you're oftentimes a freelancer, you know, in, even if you're a company, you're a vendor, they can pick another vendor and, you know, being harsh about how you get paid, uh, 
doesn't eliminate you. It's not like, oh, I'll never work with that person again. But it puts you further down the ring. <laughs> you know, like you're, you know, like everything, you have to remember that everything that you do with the client, how you, how you handle your emails, how you're in the meetings, how you do billing, how you do all these other things, it's not one of them. Well, sometimes it's one of them, but generally not one of them that causes the issue. It is usually a, comp, you know, a, a compendium. And sometimes you're so good at what you do, they'll put up with it. But, you know, I think we have a lot of people that have somebody else for them. It's sometimes their wife. It's sometimes some, a partner or some, and they've decided that's the person that's going to be the hard person that's going to go, you know, ask for money and be rough about it and terse about it. And if they're really good, you know, people will put up with that. But if you're not really good, people will be like, ah, it's like a lot of work. It's a lot of work to hire that person. <laughs> you know? so, so because someone's going to call me and they're going to harangue me about something. Um, and so uh, you just want to be careful about how you go down that path. Because again, in our business, everybody has a choice every single time. They can come back to you or not come back to you. And they might start experimenting with other people because you're difficult. And, and I have definitely been both the person who took the work because someone else was difficult and the person that lost the work because I was difficult. So, so I, you know, as I can tell you that uh, I, would, I would recommend, um, you know, being careful with, with how, you, how you interact with, with your clients that way. Absolutely great advice so far. I was rereading the question on how to create and enhance business relationships outside of traditional advertising in just a moment. You know, advertising is one of the things that can get people to know you if they don't know you, or at least, but, but that is not the relationship. That is the, the looking for new people to form a relationship with. So I've seen a lot of people fail who think if they just do constant marketing and constant advertising and they don't pay attention to the churn of the fact that they are losing clients and replacing them with new ones all the time, that is a horribly inefficient process because you spend so much of your time trying to keep up with a with a constantly roiling pool of clients that you never really get to know them where you can do this process. And what I've heard over and over again from everybody who's talked about this in this session and in my career is that confidence in you is about 50% of the battle. At some point, they're coming to you as a new potential uh, relationship person with your services, and they have to have confidence in you at some point, or they won't give you to the people above them, and they're all constantly saying, well, maybe somebody else is better. If you can establish that confidence it, for them and you and for you and them, that it's going to be a good relationship on both sides, that goes a long way. And one more thing, which is very intangible, but I discovered the importance of likability. Uh, Alex is exactly right. They have many options out there. A lot of people do this kind of work. And some sort of a process that you go through with bonding with your clients so that they enjoy the time you spend with them goes a long way. I've had CEOs actually tell me, you know, we have to put this out for a competitive bid. And, and then I'd find out a month later, yeah, I just didn't fit with them. And you're trying to figure out what it was that the other person messed, but you're glad that they what they wanted to come back to you for was to rekindle that relationship because you had made it easy and positive and you watched out for the things that could snap them and cause projects to go down the tubes. But you did it all in an environment where they felt like you were part of the team and they were glad you were on the team. If you can reach that, boy, you're really getting something done. Alex, another thought? I just remember, I, I, as someone who's not used advertising almost at all, ever, 99% uh, of all the work I've ever gotten is because someone recommended me. You know, like the, the, that someone said, this is the person that you want to use for that. And, and again, that comes, and one of the things I will say is that 
it's not just about succeeding at the event. It's how you succeeded. It's how you, uh, uh, you know, how you approach that, you know, and so uh, the client feeling like it was a smooth landing, you know, into a live, especially live events, which is what I, you know, I mostly work on the client feeling like it's smooth landing and not a bunch of emergencies all the way in. It, at first, it's just a matter of just getting it done from the beginning to the end, but then feeling like it was all under control and it was all managed. And, and you know, life really is a confidence game, you know, like in people feeling confident that you can get it done and feeling confident throughout the entire event. And it's not always going to happen. There are things happen and you're trying to do that. But what you want to do is create that smooth experience for your clients so that they don't they don't feel like it was this melee to get your your event done or your production done they feel like it was smooth um, or smooth ish or smoother than anyone else they've worked with and so those are the things you want to kind of keep in mind courtney you had a follow-up thought yeah alex brought up an important point is if you're if you're a freelance uh person like a camera operator a sound mixer or editor um and you want to get get work from a variety of different production companies referrals is one of the best ways to get that job advertising usually isn't going to get it for you putting out your reel might get it for you but i don't know a lot of people that are looking at sound man's reels even i don't even never even had a reel for working as a sound mixer but the way you'd get jobs is make friends with other sound mixers who trust your opinion and you know operate similarly to the way that they do. And then when they get booked on double booked, in other words, they're booked on a job and they get an offer for another job they can't do, they will refer that job to you. And, uh, and you have to have enough trust in them to make sure they want to make sure you're not going to steal their good client. So you'll do that job, but then you'll get exposure to those uh, production managers that are on that job for that particular client. And maybe in the future, that production manager will keep you in mind when their number one person on their list is not available. You might be slotted in at number two. So you got to make friends with the uh, production coordinators and producers uh, who are the people that do the hiring a lot of times uh, on those jobs. So uh, getting referrals is the best way to get a job uh, in the industry that I've seen. Alex followed. Yeah. And to build on what Courtney was talking about, uh, the people around you are very important you know, that you're working with and understanding where you are in the food chain, where everybody, how everybody's connected is a really important piece of the puzzle. Um, and one of the things that you do have to be careful about the one of the things that Courtney mentioned that is super important is if someone brings me into a show, I will never take that client. I, you know, I've, and I've had clients come after me. I had someone who didn't know the business very well, so they brought us in to do the job. The client got very clear that they did that they were just someone who brought us in to solve the problem. And so, of course, the client came to us. And now I'd never worked with that client before, didn't know about them. This, this agency, small agency had brought us in, and I flat out was like, Nope. <laughs> like, like I can't, like, I can't go in there. And it's probably, I probably gave up a lot of work, but that is a, that is a very, that is the line not to, not to cross in this industry because if people don't feel safe around you, if they feel like, and if they hear you trying to sell yourself to their client, if they hear you, you know, you know, talking a lot about that kind of stuff, they won't feel safe. And if they don't feel safe, they'll never recommend you. In fact, they'll oftentimes push back on when people say, hey, we're looking for these people. And they're like, oh, don't get that guy. That. Don't, don't get that guy. You know, like, and, and so you want to be very careful of, of, uh, of playing, you know, understanding that model and understanding that you can't cross certain lines and expect it, that the industry is very small and it'll get around really fast. Um, and then also throwing people under the bus really dangerous thing to do because you know they're going to remember that <laughs> so um you know so you have to you know now you know that 
definitely pointing things out and moving things forward. And there are times when you have to fight for having a, a better production, but you have to be very careful of, of what you do there. Let me just add one tiny little thing before we get into our main questions, which is this. It, it freaked me out to realize it early in my career, but you're always being watched. You're being watched by everybody. And even the people you don't think are watching you, like the rental house where you go to pick up things. And I'll never forget the time that the rental house said, you know, you've been coming in and you've been doing bigger and bigger things. You've been renting more and more gear like that. And so I'm going to start recommending you to some of the people. Ask me who can do this kind of work. And I had no clue that a vendor was judging me the same way I would judge somebody coming in to work for me. Literally, the industry is always looking for who are the up-and-coming players, who's being diligent, who's showing up on time. They want these people. I mean, this is who they're trying to use to build their peripheral staff and to recommend to their people. So if you can get into that mindset, this doesn't mean you cannot have a flaw and you can't, you know, I don't want you to think that you have to be perfect. It's not that. When you're young, you will make some mistakes, but people are also judging how you handle it when you do. You know, are you apologetic but not a sycophant about it? Can you pick yourself up and now do it right the next five times they call you to do it? Those things make an impression on the people that you're doing this work for. And so literally everything you're doing is making an impression as you go out there. So just understand that in the back of your mind. You can build a positive re reputation as easily as you can build a negative one if you just mind your P's and Q's and go out with that in mind. All right, let's get into our first question. First question comes in from Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada. He says, what sort of research into your prospective clients do panelists usually do when looking to turn them into a customer of your services? To start off, Courtney. Well, uh, I do, if I can, if information is available on that client, I'll ask some other people if they've ever worked for them. You have to be careful there because you don't. if they consider that person a client that you're asking about, they're going to get nervous that, you know, you're looking to steal their clients. So you got to be careful about that. Um, look up as much information as you can on the background of the company. If they have a website, if they have a legitimate address, you know, that kind of stuff. If you've never heard of them before, uh, do some background checking. Check if there's any better business bureau complaints about them. Check to see if they, like I say, if they have a website and they're a going concern and you can look a lot of times if it's a production company or, or a client, you can look and see uh, what other stuff that they've done. They'll usually have a reel posted on their website. So you can see if they've done a lot of high profile stuff. You know they're probably not stiffing the people that are working for them. And a lot of times if I just get a client call me and ask me for a prompting job or something, you know, I've never heard of them before and it's a single production, I'll ask for a, a pay on the day of the uh, shoot. Uh, and then after that, uh, I will work for them again and give them 30 days uh, to pay their invoices after I work with them once and establish a relationship uh, with them. So, um, you know, I, I'm fairly cautious about that, and, and I've only been stiffed about three or four times in about 30 years, so I consider that a pretty good average. Um, and a lot of times you got to worry about uh, production. A lot of production these days is independently produced. So the production company or the entity that is hiring you and paying you only exists while that production is going on, and when the production ends, the company is dissolved and goes away, and getting paid can be quite difficult if the entity that uh, has the money or had the money never exists anymore. So you got to make sure that you get paid in a timely way and that they don't dissolve the company before your paycheck goes out. 
Uh, so those are some considerations in, in how to uh, turn a client into a customer. Uh, like I say, I just do a lot of research. And and if somebody comes to me with a horror story about not getting paid, I mark that down and keep track of that uh, client or that production manager or that producer to, to, if I find out that they've stiffed several clients in the past, I just uh, tell them uh, when they call, I say, I'm sorry, I'm booked those days. Sorry, I can't, can't work with you. Alex? Yeah, I, I think that um, I, I definitely look at what they want to do. I, you know, I, I, I try to get that. I, I will say that I, I like to do a lot of things with email, but if, if there's someone new coming in, I really want to get on a call with them as fast as I can. Like, just let's talk about what you want to do. I get a really good feel for people when I'm on that video call going back and forth. What are you trying to do and what are you looking at and how you, and, and I want to get into that conversation as fast as I can, because a lot of times you have a client coming, they're hiring you because they don't know how they're going to do that or they haven't done that before. And you want to start talking to them about what that actually looks like and figure out what's possible. So a lot of times they think that things aren't possible that are easy. And they also think that are possible. They think things are possible that are hard <laughs> and expensive. And you want to kind of error correct that the fastest way possible, um, you know, and, and make sure that it's comfortable. Another thing that's kind of tangential to that is I make sure I talk to my clients all the time saying, you can just call me anytime. I don't care whether it turns into a job or not. If you just want some input on how this works, um, you know, call, you know, call me and we'll talk about it. And the reason I do that is a, I'm there and I understand what they're doing. I'm able to tr triangulate better what they're trying to get done, but B, I don't want them to wait and do six months of planning and then bring me in the last two months to execute an event that could have been much better if we had talked six months ago. And so, you know, you want to make sure that I'm not worried about, you know, if, especially if they've already been a client that's hired me, uh, I'm not worried about the hourly consulting or whatever. I mean, obviously some clients will pay me ongoingly because I'm in meetings all the time and I'm working through all that stuff. But for individuals that want a half an hour, hour here or there, um, I usually try to make myself as available as possible because you never know where that's going to go. And I will say in answer to this question, it's never been easier because almost every company, almost every person has some sort of an online thing that you could research and find out a little bit about who this person is, whether their uh, business has a good reputation or not. And it's the people who, you know, you try to follow up on and you have trouble finding them on the web and things like that. I'm much more worried about those than someone who looks like they've been on for five or 10 years and has a history of posting and boards and things like that, particularly if it's in their area of expertise, you kind of have a lot more feeling of safety. Kind of hard to hide these days. Let's go on to the next question. Next one comes in from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles. He says, when a competitor is aggressively courting your client, how do you respond if your relationship with the client has been professional but passive? Alex, help us out. Uh, to turn that around, I, I will say that I, I don't tend to respond to hard sales very, very well. Um, you know, I, I think that for me, working on the projects effectively, are the, those are the people that I hire. People calling me all the time or telling me that they're available or whatever usually doesn't mean a lot to me. Letting me know. So the way that I stay in contact with clients, and I, I have to admit, I would love to say this is a systematized thing, but it's not. Um, I consider my clients my friends. And uh, if I don't consider them my friends, I don't work for them very long. Um, I just, you know, I don't work for people I don't like. <laughs> so, so anyway, so the, uh, um, but I, because of that, I get excited about something and I'll just send them, hey, check, check this out. Hey, check this out. I'm not asking them for work and I'm not even, I have to admit, I would love to say that that's a plan, but it's mostly that I think they'd be interested in that and I send it to them. But that's as, that's as close to, you know, they're part of my little group of people because I work with them and I send them things that I think are interesting. But that's how I stay in contact with them. I don't 
say, Hey, by the way, I'm working or I was really, it was really great to work on this big project. And I just want to show, show you what we did. I don't, I don't do any of that stuff. Uh, Rami. Well, uh, second, what Alex said, and um, we, we tend to um, sometimes have clients that forget that we are there and always, uh, I have a feeling of they forget what we actually do. So if we have a, a case where a client is uh, sending the signals that they are about to change uh, um, their operations or do stuff the other way, we tend to remind them of everything we do behind the scenes that they are not aware of. Um, for instance, in, in the agency where we have web pages, we tend to send them a, a list of all the things that we actually take care of. Uh, that they don't necessarily know of and that our competitors definitely doesn't know that uh, they have to do to compete. So that's just a reminder of everything we do and uh, they tend to come back. Courtney? Yeah, I guess uh, we could put this under discussion of pricing. Uh, when you get into competition with uh, someone uh, and the client knows that smells blood in the water, and they will start playing you against the competition and it quickly becomes a pricing race to the bottom. And you want to be very careful about this. You want to not go, not try and undercut the other guy too much uh, because once you lowball a bid, uh, that producer is going to expect you for that lowball bid every time he hires you. And so then uh, then you're going to get yourself into another strata of lower lower priced uh, productions. And uh, once you're in that strata, that leads to a lower strata and lower strata. You work your way down rather than up. So the point is to kind of price yourself competitively uh, with the people that are above you in the, in the strata above you. And a lot of times it'll let, allow you to move up rather than down. So, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a stratified area of competition that you're competing in. And uh, if you price yourself too low, a lot of times uh, uh, production companies won't consider you because they think, oh, well, he's in that lower tier. We don't want to use that person, even though you may have the qualifications of somebody in a tier above what, what they're bidding on. So you got to be careful about pricing yourself, underpricing yourself or overpricing yourself. And a lot of times if you find that the client is one of those people that doesn't care about quality or the the job that you're doing for them and is only paying attention to that budget item on their, that line item on their budget, uh, let that client go because they'll always be coming to you and nickel and diming you. And can you give us five days? Can you give us a three day deal on the equipment instead of five or, or, or can you give us a two day deal on the equipment instead of five, you know, give it to us for five, but only charges for two. Or a lot of times they would even ask us to, uh, this is the reason I'm in the union, they would ask us to, uh, you know, work 12 hours for a uh, eight-hour day and just don't put it on your time card. So people that ask for that, mm, bye-bye. <laughs> I will also note that you should probably try to evolve as you go up the corporate ladder with your clients. I'll never forget a day that uh, I got to work with a CEO about the third or fourth time, and I had noticed in the Wall Street Journal that their stock had hit a new thing. So I just said, hey, 10470 today. Congratulations, Bob. I got a big smile, and that just me understanding that he was thinking in those terms and that he suddenly understood that I was paying attention to their overall, you know, what was important to him, just 
increases your connection just a little bit. So as you move up, you know, realize who you're going to be dealing with and pay attention to what's important to them. Let's go to the next question. Next one comes in from uh, Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Ontario, Canada. It says, what is the most effective way to maintain a relationship with a supplier or service? Ronnie Haas is going to start us out. Ronnie? Well, um, we tend to have um, uh, repeated uh, conversations or meetings, status meetings. Um, some clients, we have it weekly. Other, we have it bi-monthly or even uh, every six months, but keeping up the contact and uh, knowing what is changing within the co uh, company or, or at the client uh, is really important. Maybe they change uh, uh, leadership, there are new persons uh, coming in, uh, old friends in the company is leaving. So keeping uh, kind of in contact with them is a really good advice that we have uh, earned a lot of. Courtney? Yeah, and as far as uh, maintaining a relationship with supplier or service, so where you're getting that service or supply from uh, an individual, pay your bills on time is one thing, but establish a one-to-one -one, uh, relationship. Find an anchor person at that supplier or at that service or at that production company, et cetera, that you deal with all the time. And always ask to talk to that person. And once you establish a personal relationship, company, it's a lot easier to, uh, you know, bug them about a past due bill or, you know, if they owe you money or, uh, you know, let you get away with, oh, can you give me three more days? We're behind on accounting to pay your bills. So once you establish a personal relationship with somebody at that company, uh, we'll give you, we'll cut you a lot of slack in, uh, in maintaining a relationship and uh, uh, ability to be, keep that person as a client for a longer period of time. Amen to that. Let's go to the next question. From Tlaloc Lopez Waterman in Brevard, North Carolina, he says, what was the worst choice you have made in your career in regards to business relationship? Oh, boy. Uh, Alex. You know, I think that the two things that I've done that, that haven't worked out very well, number one was, that, you know, I, I've had clients that, you know, you get to a point where you're not sure if they're ever really going to turn the corner. Like they're never going to, you know, I, it's oftentimes when I'm working, it's more than money to me. It's like trying to produce a great product. And I think I've, I've had some clients that I've gone, I've decided that they're not, <laughs> they're never going to get there. And then I get a little edgy, you know, and just, just kind of like, you know, just, I, you know, and I, and I try to push, <coughs> I either I'm trying to push it forward. I'm, I'm trying to, I heard you there, Courtney, um, trying to push it forward or, um, uh, or I just kind of just am a little dismissive of, of stuff. And I've gotten much better at not, <laughs> not doing that because a lot of times they, they can turn the corner and they will do it. And they're working with a whole bunch of internal politics and there's a whole bunch of pieces of that puzzle. The other thing that I've done is I've handed it off to somebody and then just, you know, in my company, I've handed it off to people and said, well, you just handle that because I'm not interested in that anymore. And I move it on and they take it over. And then what I've had happen a couple times is they end up just going into that company and taking the work you know, or, or going into another company and taking the work. And so making sure that the, that the client is still interacting with the primary person in the company, I think is, is something that is um, important and making sure that you're paying attention to that they're getting served and getting taken care of at every moment. And even if, even if things aren't, you don't agree with the things that are going there at some point you have to, it is a business and you have to make sure that they're getting everything they paid for and, um, and, and more, you know, to, that's how you build up a good, a good business. 
Um, and, uh, and you're not as, you know, that's, but again, it's hard because a lot of us are creatives and we get, you get to a point where not all the work that you get is creative you know, or, or it's too creative. And, you know, the other thing you get tired of sometimes is that people are zigzagging all over the place and making a bunch of decisions. And that's just part of being in a corporate environment. You know, if you're doing corporate work and in Hollywood, it's chaos. So you just have to be used to the chaos that, that occurs, you know, that's related to that. Courtney. Uh, be careful of partnerships, uh, especially if you're bringing something unique to the business that uh, the other partners really can't do. And the business is based on that uh, talent or that information or that product that you're bringing. Uh, be careful about bringing. I've been in a couple of businesses with three partners. And if you're the one that's supplying, you know, 90 percent of what the, the intellectual property that the business is marketing, you have to be very careful because uh, the two partners can gang up on you and take the business away from you. And then you're stuck paying the bills uh, and they're getting all the income. Uh, so uh, be very careful about business relationships in that way. And uh, that's why I have basically severed all of my business partnerships and I own all of the stock in my corporations now uh, because uh, you never know, you know, when business is good, uh, they will, you know, they'll, everybody wants a bigger piece of the pie when business is good and there's a lot of competition when that happens and uh, things which were originally amicable and, you know, each person had their own responsibilities when that business was formed, you'll find that, you know, some people turn out to be deadbeats and some don't. And it's not easy to sever your relationship without destroying the company. So um, just be careful in partnerships or corporations or limited liability corporations. Partners are always problems, I always say. Yeah, I only have one thing that really stuck in my mind from my years of doing business, and it was a political and or relationship thing. Um, they brought in a new consultant, and I was working kind of directly on a project under her, and uh, it turned out to be a dishonest person. I mean, literally, we, I, we were responsible for some things. She was responsible for some things. We got all stuff done. She hadn't done any of hers and tried to throw us under the bus as the party that didn't get things done. And in the and the reason I'm saying it's a political thing because I I sat for a moment and I thought do I bring this to the next level up I know some people there should I break the kind of chain of command and it was only when we started hearing things about uh, that we might have been dishonest in a thing I thought that's crossing the line so I had to go to a senior vice president and say you know we've been working for you for a long time and I just have to tell you my side of this I'm not sure I cured anything and that toxic moment relationship. Thing Thing. What it caused me to do is to say, don't always assume that everybody in an organization is either neutral or working in your best interest. Sometimes you will come across somebody who's actively trying to tear you down. And I wish I had been more politically sensitive to that going into that. I could have, probably could have built better um, better safety valves by just not assuming that everyone was on the up and up and that. That was a hard lesson. Ronnie, you had a thought? Yeah, I totally agree on that. Uh, we, we've all been uh, hiring people that are not what they are um, seemingly being. Uh, not and not necessarily hostile, but uh, you know, trying to undermine what you're doing, uh, and uh, eventually you have to let them go. Uh, uh, and and if you have to let people go and are sitting with a good feeling, 
uh, you should be a little bit more uh, alert uh, before you hire them. So, uh, and as uh, as well as uh, keeping everything in written agreements should be written, not just uh, talked about in a meeting. And uh, suddenly you have these persons have this uh, uh, are leaving the company or uh, are are put into other uh, work places or, or do other stuff and then you have to deal with this uh, uh, agreements uh, in, in uh, with other peoples that didn't necessarily know all the details so be uh, very very uh, detailed about what you uh, are doing with with these companies absolutely let's go on to the next question Next question comes from Dave Troutman in Edmonton. Says, what would be the most common way a relationship can be damaged? Alex? Failure. <laughs> like just, just, just know that failure of your event or the production is going to be the, the that is the easiest way to damage your relationship. Uh, in most cases, you get to fail once. You know, like, you know, you get to fail, you know, once and that's it. Like, you know, they're going to go on to somebody else or they're going to definitely be looking uh, you can you can kind of get away with it uh, sometimes if you really build a great relationship with someone and it's not all your fault. Um, but even what we found is that even when it's somebody else's fault, oftentimes we've lost the client. So um, that's why I have a tendency to take a holistic view of things and make sure that everybody's successful and everybody's doing well. And I don't I stay in my lane, but I do pay attention to everything else around me to make sure that we've had ones where we've even told the client over in every meeting for weeks that if we go down this path, it's going to fail because of that, what these guys are doing. And then when it fails, we still lost the job <laughs> because they decided they didn't want to do that anymore. It's not that they, they didn't fire us. They just decided that this kind of business is, you know, live is very dangerous and so on and so forth. That was the post company that did something that we told them that, hey, that's not going to work. Um, and so so I think that failure is the number one way to damage a, a, a relationship. Um, the second worst is harsh words, you know, just harsh words with folks. Um, you know, there's a, really decide whether the words that are you, you're about to say verbally over email text is really going to make any difference. And if it's not going to make any difference, there's no reason to say it. Like you just, you know, like there's not, doesn't help you to, to do that. And so um, you, you can always tell people who know, understand corporate really well is because you can see something going on in their head and they'll just say, they just, <laughs> they just kind of nod. There's not going to, they're not going to, they, they don't have any, you know, they've decided that there's nothing, the words that were going to come out of their mouth are not going to move the conversation forward and therefore they're inefficient. And people who get good at this oftentimes get pretty good at, at being that way. And people who don't have a harder time getting the next gig. So, Courtney? Well, after a failure to pay, I'd say, or get paid, uh, probably poaching is is a great way to damage a relationship. Uh, yeah, very, it's a very yeah, competitive world out there, and if you are brought in as an independent contractor for one specific task, like a cinematographer or a sound mixer, and you have your own production company, never, never pitch yourself, as Alex pointed out earlier, to the client because once you try, once the person who brought you in sees you trying to. Uh, promote yourself to replace them, you'll never work with that person again and you'll develop a bad reputation for poaching and that can end your career. Next question. Oops, Courtney, you're muted. Um, it's Lalik Lopez Waterman in Broward, North Carolina says, what was the best choice you have made in your career in regards to business relationship? Alex. 
um, a, a business partner of mine had had a little bit of a, a trouble at, at work and, and ended up, um, you know, being being let go. And I knew that they were great <laughs> in what they did. And I, you know, did did a lot of work to kind of help them get through that that moment. And when they ended up where they ended up next, uh, you know, they brought an enormous, like just a stunning amount of work in my direction, helped me do a lot of other things, helped a lot of other bits and pieces. And I'll tell you that I'm, my relationships with people who are partners is I relate to that person, not to the company that they're, that they're at. And so when they move on, I stay connected to them and I'm not looking for something. I'm just looking to be, I get, I identify good people and I identify them as people that I want to have on my productions, people that I want to know in the future. And I oftentimes will maintain those relationships for a long time, regardless of where they are. And most people won't do that. As soon as you're not working for the big company they're working for, they kind of forget that you're there. And uh, all of that has been some of the best things that have happened because they end up somewhere and you're, they realize that your relationship with them is not dependent on their position. It's dependent on who they are. And that's the kind of people that most people want to work with. Courtney? Uh, best choices I find is buying out deadbeat partners. Uh, <laughs> try and do it on a, you know... Obviously, Corby's had a lot of business issues. Had, you know, this is coming out here. We're, we're sussing this out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and that's the other thing uh, I was going to mention. Try and do it amicably. You know, offer them something that's worth. You know, you you're, you'll be better. Even if you're going to pay them a little bit more than their stock is probably worth. Uh, you you get rid of dragging them along and them taking a, a large percentage of the profits for absolutely contributing nothing. Uh, so uh, you'll be better off in the long run. And if you do it amicably, you avoid the lawsuits. And if you bring lawyers into any situation to dissolve a company, it's going to cost you four times what it would if you just slightly overpaid to get out of that relationship. Right, Elon? Four. <laughs> for me, it was early in my career when I realized that it was just as easy to pitch a client I wanted to work for as it was to pitch one I really didn't want to work for. Uh, you know, when you're starting out, you'll take anybody. And I had a couple of circumstances where I got hooked up with a client that really wasn't a good fit. And I still tried my hardest to do the best I could. But when it came time to replace clients or when I thought it was time for me to go out and pitch more, thinking, well, who do I really want to work for? If I'm actually getting to be good at this, maybe I have some control over that. So instead of looking for any client, I started looking for clients that shared my value system and the rest of the things that would make me happy to go on set and shoot stuff for them. And that was a big turning point for me. So it's just one thought as you're growing your business. Let's go to the next question. Next question from Jesse Mills in San Francisco in the Bay Area. He says, how can people understand production companies in order to find experienced companies and avoid inexperienced companies? I ask because of the deluge of new virtual event companies. Alex. It's building a network. You know, it's, it is building a network of folks that, that do, that you, that do want to work together. Um, a lot of times, you know, when I'm, saying, hey, I'm going to go do this thing that I want to experiment with, like the soccer games and everything else. As much as I am, tr I'm trying to figure something out. I'm trying to figure out how the technology works. I'm trying to build a relationship with somebody that that is connected to that. I'm also trying to meet people. <laughs> so, 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 you know, so when I, so we put those things out and who, who shows up, whether, whether it's uh, those kinds of things. So when I'm doing a lot of the things that I do pro bono, it's also me uh, figuring out a technology, figuring out a workflow 
and getting to know people that I may end up working for or with, or they may work for me or whatever it is. I'm figuring all of those things out and I do those all the time. Um, and I'm figuring and I'm talking to folks and trying to sort things out all the time. And I think that, you know, you just, you gotta be part of that network. You're not going to be able to just educate people who don't know. Um, you just, you build the network. So you're the one that gets called. Uh, Courtney. Yeah. I mean, it was a lot harder before the internet. Uh, nowadays, uh, if I want to check out a company that I've never heard of or never worked for before, like I say, go to see if they have a website. And a lot of times if they're a competitive company, they will have lists of their past clients. As long as they're not doing top secret work or they have clients with NDAs in them that, that, you know, say that they cannot advertise the fact that they work for that client. Uh, check out what they've done in the past. Look at their reel uh, that's posted online. You can do that passively without having to contact anybody at the company or stir up any uh, any bad vibes with you looking into their background. Uh, do some uh, searches on the heads of the uh, company to see if they've got wants or warrants out or see if they've had uh, problems with uh, financial problems or bankruptcies in the past. So, you know, if you do your research, you can feel out a lot of the shysters that are out there that, that have learned how to put up a good website and uh, put a bunch of uh, fake stuff on it. You know, there is occasionally you'll run across that. So do a little more research than just looking at the website and make sure the credits that they're claiming were actually done by them. Uh, just spot check them here and there. And then once you once they check out, then you can probably trust them. Yeah, I will say it's di more difficult, I think, in the fast emerging spaces. Uh, when desktop publishing was coming in, there were a lot of people who said they did it and they didn't, and they were still kind of in the old Linotronic area. And I've seen that over and over again in different areas. When a new technology comes out, suddenly everyone claims it. And has there been anything more like that recently than AI? Everything is, everybody and everything is now with AI. And so you have to figure out a way to figure out who actually know has some depth in this relatively new thing. And, you know, we get a sense of that from people like our own John Preto, who comes now and starts telling us about what he's learning and researching and working hard on. So we gain more and more confidence in the fact that he actually does have much better command than most of the other people I know in this new area, because he's working diligently to gain that command. It's different than just somebody saying, I'm going to, you know, we're also a digital agency that can do SEO. And you find out, well, they read two articles and a book, and now they're purporting that they can do those things, and they actually have no depth in that. They're learning. Nothing wrong with learning, but you're getting a different thing when you're getting somebody who's learning than somebody who's practicing it. Alex? Yeah, and one of the things that is, uh, you know, one of the easiest ways to do this is also to provide content, um, you know, so whether it's on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, other things, talking about it and posting little things about it. Now, I don't do most of those things because I do this. <laughs> so this is my version of that. And people who come on and when you're giving people advice and talking through those and serving your entire market with knowledge, you're also positioning yourself as someone who knows what they're talking about. Um, and uh, it's actually why we have the whole system built the way we do here in office hours is so that everyone can only answer, only has to answer the questions that they're experts at, you know, that they're purported an expert at rather than, you know, and so that they're, you know, so things like office hours or writing things out or put, posting those things is a great way to kind of also build up. Um, one of the first big jobs I got that I got paid a lot, a lot of money for was I wrote an article that I got paid almost nothing for and it went on to, you know, national syndication and, and literally my client showed it to me. We were talking about something and he said, this is a great article on this. And I was like, yeah, I wrote, I wrote, 
I wrote that article. And uh, that generated a lot of work. <laughs> so, so for me, so. Yeah. Yeah. Never underestimate the power of your your public face because people do watch this stuff. Next question. From uh, Tlalic Lopez Waterman in Brevard. What metrics do you use to make a choice to end a business relationship? Ah, tough question, Alex. I don't end a lot of them, I have to admit. Um, I will, you know, oftentimes there's just a lot of work. And so it's a matter of where I'm prioritizing it or how I'm prioritizing who's going to where I'm available, I think, is, is a lot of times how I kind of hedge one way or the other. The only time we really get into a position where I need to end our business relationship is uh, payment issues. You know, so so long, you know, usually, you know, not getting paid for a very, very, very long time uh, or just people being really like, again, if I feel like they're lying to me for some reason, those are places that I uh, flat out lying or not paying, paying the bills are the two things that for me are kind of the ones that I kind of set the line. But outside of that, it's mostly just a matter of who who's going to do that job, <laughs> whether it's going to be me or not, or whether I'm going to work on it or not. Courtney, quick. Yeah, the metric I use is how much sleep is lost. At night, if I find myself laying awake in bed going, you know, those guys are just messing up left and right. And I, you know, how am I going to deal with this? If I'm losing sleep every night over a business relationship, that's when it's time to cut the cord. All right, we've got a couple more questions. Let's see if we can do them real quick before we finish up. Next question. From Dave Troutman in Edmonton, uh, Canada. He says, would you ever sue to get paid or just take the loss? Is there a threshold for legal action? Alex, what do you feel? Um, coming from a family of lawyers, uh, you never know what's going to happen when you, open up a, when you open up that can of worms. And so I, I have never, I will not say that I would never sue but I never have. Uh, I will do almost anything I can do in my in my power to not do that, and I will definitely not threaten it unless I'm going to do it. Um, the mistake people make is that this, you know, threatening legal action of any kind, whether it's I'm going to report you to the government or I'm going to sue you or whatever, that's a, a nuclear option. And it's and it, and when you say those things, you now are like you're deciding I no longer want to work with that client or anyone around them. You know, and I, and I don't, and, and, and to be honest with you, when people swing that stick, everyone around them pays attention. Like that's, this person is litigious and litigious people have a tendency to not get hired, <laughs> like, you know, because, you, you know, like, it, and so, so swinging that stick of, I, I, I'm going to sue that person or whatever. You don't even want to say that around people because there's like, oh, that's going to be trouble. You know, so just, just be, be very careful of those, of, of doing that. Let's get to the next question real quick. Okay. Yeah. I would never work with a client again if I had to sue them. What do you do to handle situations where client leadership is changing and many years of relationship is simply not there anymore? I dealt with that and I had, I lost the client and it's just there, it's going to happen occasionally. I mean, after 15 years with a client, the, the new administration came in, they went in another direction. There's not much you can do about it because generally the new owners clean the house. Uh, Alice, do you have a quick thing you want to mention? Yeah, I mean, the biggest defense against that is you customize your client, you customize your services to the client to such a level that someone else coming in is not going to be able to achieve that, that, that um, result. And that is why 
I, I never do the same job the same way again. Like every single time I get a job, I'm, t- I'm turning screws to make it a little bit better. I'm a little cl- and I'm specializing it to that client and customizing it to that client so that, you know, we, I've definitely had ones where someone else came, was brought in and that first show, because the client has all these expectations. Okay, we're going to do this and this and this, because these are all things I did for them. It wasn't something I charged extra for. It wasn't something I talked to them about. I just started doing all these other things that I had figured out how to do affordably it is a nightmare to walk into a, into a situation where you're new with a new relationship. Cause it's usually not, everybody's not new. <laughs> There's one new person who says, I want to bring in a new vendor and that vendor, it is a, it's a, it's a briar patch that you've just created around everything you're doing, but you're doing it out of just continuing to add the services and add all the bits and pieces to that, to that puzzle to make it really, really great for your client. And that's your best defense in my opinion. Courtney, you got a quick one. Uh, yeah, if you find that a new leadership comes in or, or the major company changes hands, a lot of times the new leaders will come in and clean house when they just don't realize what they're doing uh, to establish relationships. I had a radio station I worked for, and new, new management came in. They said, he said, there's no place for part-time personnel at this company. Lay off, uh, you know, fire all the part-time personnel. The production manager did that. Then they quickly found out that uh, 80% of their on-air staff was part-time. So uh, they had no one to go on the air. So just lay back. If you find that's the situation, lay back. You may find out that they actually need you. And uh, don't threaten to sue them or anything like that because they may come back to you suddenly with a tail between the legs. Let's get into the last question. Uh, From Douglas Carmichael, many have said uh, serendipitous interactions are a significant advantage of RTO. How much do those interactions factor into business uh, relationships and how can we leverage them? Alex? Yeah, I mean, being on site, this is a return to office. Uh, being on site definitely gives you the opportunity to go out for lunch and, uh, you know, have or have bring in lunch and talk to folks and so on and so forth. So the biggest, th- biggest thing is those casual conversations are very valuable. And so that's how you take advantage of, the, of that. But I think a lot of times just constant interaction and being responsive can um, equal some of that oftentimes. Uh, so it's, it's a little bit of both. So this takes us essentially to the end. Thank you, everybody, for participating in this. It's been fabulous. Um, We'll be back tomorrow doing the same thing. We're a little bit past the top. So uh, I'll just say thank you to everybody involved in this show. Thank you to the panelists. Without the experts showing up here every day to answer your questions, this becomes impossible. Thank you so much to all those of you who are in our audience who put in the questions that drive the show. We really appreciate it. And for the amazing behind-the-scenes crew who wake up every morning and put this show on the air. We truly appreciate your efforts. Without you, this is impossible. Uh, Don't forget, After Hours is available 24-7. We'll be back tomorrow morning, bright and early. So thank you for watching and listening to Office Hours. We'll see you tomorrow.